and welcome to the Digital Digest, your weekly podcast on all things digital infrastructure, brought to you by the team here at Capacity Media. I'm your host, Editor Melanie Mingus, and joining me this week, we have Editor-at-Large Alan Burkett-Gray and Deputy Editor Natalie Bannerman. Later in this episode, we will also be joined by Colm Shorten, who is the Senior Director of Data Centers at JLL. And Colm is going to be talking about the firm's recent sustainability research, um, as well as some other things all about sustainability and data centers. Um, but before that, it's time for the news. So a quick roundup of what's been happening over recent days. This week, we have heard that ICASA, the South African regulator, has abandoned its spectrum auction due to legal opposition and is now planning one by the end of January 2022. OneWeb has landed a new wholesale contract, this time with AT&T, to take its broadband services to rural America. And Afrocell is to wind down its operations in Uganda less than a decade after buying the business from Orange. Meanwhile, Ontix, a company building small-scale wireless networks here in the UK, is to pilot open-run technology inside buildings. And six urban clusters in the US state of Texas are among the top 10 places in the US for availability of 5G, according to a new survey. Um, meanwhile, in the world of subsea, Sienna has been contracted to provide its coherent optical technology for cross-channel fibre, and Fugaro has completed the offshore fieldwork phase for the subsea fibre project that will see 16 new cables connect Scotland. Um, and in data centres, Africa Data Centres is to more than double its portfolio with 10 hyperscale facilities, while further north, D9 has acquired Iceland's Burn Global for £231 million. And it has been tower deals galore this week. In Indonesia, Telkomcell has sold 4,000 towers to Mitratel. And in Saudi Arabia, Zain has sold a majority stake in its tower business to the Sovereign Wealth Fund and two other entities. And talking all things tower, next week we will be joined by Kash Pandya, who is the group CEO of Helios Towers Africa. Um, But before that, we're going to tackle the bigger stories of the week and hand over to Natalie, who's going to continue the deal theme and bring us latest on Beyond's Towers, as well as some other acquisition and merger news. Thanks, Melanie. Yeah, so starting off with a major development this week, uh, SoftBank has formed an equity share swap agreement with Deutsche Telekom, uh, under which SoftBank will become a 4.5% shareholder in Deutsche Telekom, retaining its 3.3% equity stake in T-Mobile US, while Deutsche Telekom increases its stake in T-Mobile US from 5.3% to 48.4%. Now, the share swap agreement um, has been valued at approximately uh, $7 billion, with Deutsche Telekom getting 45 million T-Mobile US shares from SoftBank in exchange for issuing 225 million new Deutsche Telekom shares to SoftBank from its authorised capital. In addition, the two have also inked an agreement whereby Deutsche Telekom will become a key European partner in the SoftBank ecosystem. Specifically, they will partner on uh, joint investment and the expansion into new services, including scaling and investing in global connectivity platforms, where they focus on enterprise customers in areas such as IoT. In relation to this, and pretty much at the same time as this announcement, uh, Deutsche Telekom's management said that that it will support uh, SoftBank's proposal to have uh, Marcello Kluhr appointed to the supervisory board of Deutsche Telekom um, at the next um, annual general meeting. Um, And if that wasn't enough, the company also closed on its sale of 
T-Mobile Netherlands and Tele2 to WPAP Holdings, uh, which is an entity jointly controlled by funds advised by the private equity firms Apex Partners and Warburg Pincus for uh, 4.5 billion euros or uh, roughly 5.3 billion dollars. Uh, so once the transaction is completed, uh, subject to standard closing conditions, including regulatory approvals and consultation with employee uh, representatives, Deutsche Telekom will make approximately uh, 3.8 billion euros. Um, in net cash proceeds. This is after the net of proceeds to 25% sh uh, shareholder Tele2, as well as uh, paying off other debt. Now, elsewhere, uh, Russian telco Vion has reached an agreement to sell its uh, mobile network towers to service telecom for a total of uh, 70 billion rubles or uh, roughly uh, 970 billion dollars. Service telecom is actually an existing uh, long term partner to PJSC Vimplecom, uh, which operates in Russia under the Beeline brand, uh, which is a Vion subsidiary. Service Telecom actually provides uh, PJSC uh, Vimplecom with uh, passive infrastructure across uh, regions in Russia. Uh, so this still actually builds upon that existing relationship. The transaction also includes the sale of 100 percent of uh, uh, National Tower Company, which is another Vion subsidiary, which operates a portfolio of approximately 15,000 towers across Russia. So all of the active mobile network infrastructure currently owned by PJSC Vimplecom and the majority of the rooftop towers uh, will remain with the company uh, in line with Vion's renewed focus on active portfolio management. So it's only the passive uh, infrastructure that's being sold. Uh, also, as part of this deal, a PJSC Vimplecom and Servicecom uh, Service Telecom um, have formed a long term master agreement for the provision of tower assets um, services for an initial uh, period of uh, eight years, as well as a new build-to-suit program made up of 5,000 sites by 2029. Vion says it will use the proceeds of the deal uh, to further invest in network expansions and technology upgrades. Uh, subject to uh, regulatory approvals, It's uh, the transaction is due to complete in Q4 of this year. Lastly, uh, Macquarie Infrastructure Partners, uh, which is an infrastructure fund managed by uh, Macquarie Asset Management, has completed the acquisition of Cincinnati Bell for $2.5 billion. For those unaware, Cincinnati Bell is a regional uh, telco based in Cincinnati, Ohio, in the US. Uh, under the terms of the merger, uh, a controlled subsidiary of uh, Macquarie Infrastructure Partners was merged with and into Cincinnati Bell, with Cincinnati Bell surviving the merger as a controlled subsidiary of Macquarie Infrastructure Partners. Uh, through the acquisition, um, Cincinnati Bell says that it will be able to accelerate the expansion of its fibre network over the next three years and also make high-speed internet available throughout its operating territories. Um, but that's it from me on news for this week. Fantastic. Um, so many deals. And this actually um, plays into a few trends that were predicted um, earlier in the year. Um, and I was reading some research earlier from EY, um, the former Ernst Young. Um, they did an M&A survey back in April, um, which found that 60% of telecom execs expect to complete more deals this year than last. And 65% saw sector-wide M&A on the rise, which speaks to all the things that you said there. And it's very interesting that these deals have been happening across different sectors of the industry over the last few days as well. Yeah, I think um, infrastructure seems to be the um, the kind of go-to um, for 
private equity and I know it's something that Alan's been kind of talking about for for a while now but it certainly seems to be um, I'm not sure if it's as a result of the pandemic or it's all coming to a head at the same time but there certainly seems to be a lot of deals going on right now I'm not sure what's specific about this kind of moment in time but certainly there is a lot of interest going on at the moment. I don't think it's particularly pandemic related, though that might be an interesting thing to investigate, Natalie. But certainly it has been coming along for some time and we've had people like Digital Colony in the States and Digital Nine uh, that you mentioned earlier, Melanie, in your your headline of headlines of the week. Um, those big organisations are sort of gathering money, usually for to manage wealth for people who have a lot of it. <laughs> and actually, one of the consequences of the pandemic is people who have a lot of money have tended to end up with even more money, um, which is an interesting thing. So they'll probably therefore need more money, more people to manage it and more places to put it. Um, but let's not get political too much. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, it's been it's been happening for a couple of years Uh People are also in the industry realizing that they've got to invest long term and they, they don't like to have quarterly results that they have to talk to analysts and shareholders about and banks about every you know every three months. They like to just talk to a, a long, a steady shareholder like Warburg Pincus or whoever it might be and uh, carry on with the business with a, a plan to do it for you know years and years. And one of the one of the things I, I do worry about is how many how long these companies these investors are committed whether they're just wanting to do it for three or four or five years and then sell out and whether they're therefore looking for a, a big big merger boom sort of around 20 25 26 maybe we should be looking for that um when they all want to monetize as they say their investments i don't know mm. Interesting. We will we'll keep an eye on that one. In hospitality, for example, that return on investment is eight years. So they all look to flip their investment wow. every eight years. So it'd be interesting yeah. how it compares in telecoms. Um, but staying on this deal theme, um, one deal that hasn't gone so well this week is the sale of GTT's infrastructure. Um, Alan, you've been covering this story for quite some time. There was huge news from the US over their holiday weekend just gone. Um, tell us what's happening now with GTT. Well, yeah, it was. I've been covering it for a couple of years. Well, I've actually been covering it for several years because at all our events for the last five years or something, I used to meet Vic Calder, who was the person who put together GTT Communications and bought all sorts of businesses like Interroot and Hibernia uh, Communications and a lot of other smaller businesses uh, and merged them together into this giant GTT Communications. And he spent he rather his shareholders, of whom he was one, uh, spent uh, billions and billions of dollars over a very short period of time. And it was always very ambitious. He was always going to merge it totally into GTT. They were going to get their IT in, uh, integrated within six, nine months. Um, and they were going to be going to market as the new GTT, whether they come from Interroot or Hibernia or whatever it might be within a really short period of time. And I think it all came unraveled about early 2020. And I'm not sure what turned the tide. It will be something that business schools will do lots of lots of work on over the next few years, I think. Uh, if you have the cash around, you can buy GTT today for $22 million. That's not billion, it's million. Uh, that excludes any debts they have, and their debts are quite high. They... 
boo us all into a panic uh, as America was closing down for the Labour Labor Day long weekend. I mean, basically everyone goes away on Thursday night, Friday morning. And so GTT threw this bombshell into the uh, into the ring. I'm mixing metaphors Threw this bombshell into the ring on Thursday night by saying this had agreed that as soon as it had done, it had sold its infrastructure to ISQ, though that was announced in October last year and still hasn't been completed. I We first thought, oh, they've completed. And then you read the small print and no, they haven't completed. And it's still going to be completed at some point in the near future, but they haven't said yet when it will be. Uh, but as soon as that's done, GTT will go into what they call a pre-packaged chapter 11 case, which basically means that they're bankrupt and the lenders will take over the company. Um, and I say that's worth the, the GTT's debts are huge. Uh, it spent billions buying up Interroot and other companies. Um, and today, if you wanted to buy shares in GTT, you can get them for a few cents. And the whole thing is worth $22 million, which is just uh, extraordinary. But um, we still don't know when it's going to be. Uh, it will be sometime in the near future. But it's sort of... It just keeps drifting on. It's um, it's a bit like uh, fusion power or all those sort of technological things that are always five years away. With GTT, it's always a few months away. When they announced it in October, it was going to be complete by the first half of 2021. And as you can tell, we're not. We're well beyond the first half of 2021. We're almost into the fourth quarter of 2021. Um, so we don't know when it's going to happen. We don't know what's long term whether it will actually complete in the as agreed um i'm not i squared capital uh and i don't they have they have the details maybe i'm not impugning any uh motives to them but you know maybe they're just waiting for the whole thing to fall over and then they could pick it up in the fire sale but then they'd have to compete with lots of other people they would have a advantage because they've spent at least they spent several years doing due diligence. They wanted to buy Interroot four or five years ago when uh, um, when GTT got its hands on because it bid, bid more. But it's it's a mess. It's a mess. And we still don't know what's going to happen. Uh, we still don't know when it will happen. Um, GTT's big problem that really sent it into a spiral was that it's fail to report its quarterly results and its annual results. And that actually really did send a shock through the industry because usually people in the telecoms industry, you know, they know what they're doing. They've been in this business many, many years and GTT is at least 20 years old. Uh, so you'd think that they'd know what the telecoms industry is and what they must account for in their quarterly returns. But they seem to say a very vague, and I haven't got it in front of me, but a very strange comment that, they were trying to understand the particular nature of the telecoms industry so they could complete their quarterly returns. And I found that such a, a mind boggling statement. You think, what on earth is going on? Suffice it to say that the CEO and the CFO and various other people in the company left within a fairly short period of time. So they got some people who don't know the company. I mean, they've come in over the last year and are trying to rescue the company from whatever mess it's in but it's uh isq i would think is is top of the list for taking over the infrastructure business 
uh, uh, back in October, I talked to the person in charge of that bid, and they had actually been bidding for it five years ago, so they know it very well. Um, but what happens to the rest of uh, GTT, which is a services company? It's a services company without any infrastructure, which is an interesting position because it's a way a lot of the industry is going. But if the, your riches, your treasure, uh, is your fiber network around the US and the Atlantic and Europe, uh, what do you do if you don't have it anymore? What advantage can you have over Verizon Business or AT&T or Bell Canada or Orange International Carrier or someone like that? I don't know. It's it's GTT uh, is extraordinary mess and it's going to be um, it's going to as I say it's going to be something that business school MBA students will be studying for years to come. It's it's. It's almost it's not quite on the scale of the dot com crash in the 21 years ago, but it's getting there. Fantastic roundup. And yet quite um, it was a shock announcement, um, but also not a shock. It was just a. Oh, they just had to pull it, didn't they? They were like, oh, we're going to announce this and everyone's going to go away for four days and no one will be available. And it's just a really classic yeah. move when you want to avoid facing up to. Yeah, the other time in 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 the other time for dodgy announcements is usually around the twentieth or twenty first of December, um, and there've been lots in the industry, all sorts of industries. They just say on you know the last working day before Christmas, before the whole of the uh, Western world and a lot of you know the Southern world closes down for a week or two. Um, about four p.m. on the last working day, they send a stock exchange announcement or new. And everyone says, what? Who knew about that? And it's exactly the same. You just do it before everybody goes away for Labor Day. Um, and of course, it meant that no one was around to comment. No one was around to throw any analysis on. And a lot of people are only just getting back. So it's the last for Americans. It's the last holiday of the year. Um, Americans have little enough, few enough days off. So um, um so we we will it will emerge over the rest of September and into October. Um, but ISQ is going to be an interesting owner for GTT because, as you say, uh, it already owns. It bought a data center company in Mexico only a few weeks ago, and it already owns for the last four years uh, HGC Communi Global Communications based in Hong Kong. They are separate. They've said several times they will keep them separate, but it's becoming a center of expertise in investing in digital infrastructure, which is, and it's going to be one of the big private equity powers in the industry, I think. And it all comes full circle then, doesn't it? Um, <laughs> do you also have Thanksgiving coming up in a few weeks in November? There could be another announcement. Oh, yes. Uh, I will mark it in my calendar. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Announcements on people up on the on the on the Wednesday before just as they're all going away for Thanksgiving. Yeah, I better do that. <laughs> Good. <to see. laughs> Fantastic. Um, well, thanks, Natalie and Alan, for bringing us the latest on those stories. Next up in today's episode, we are talking data center sustainability with Colm Shorten, who is the director of data centers at Jones Lang LaSalle. Colm, welcome to Digital Digest, and thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Melanie. You're welcome. 
Um, now, energy efficiency in the data center industry is a big topic for us editorially, um, but it's also something that's growing in importance for the industry itself. Um, so first of all, we're going to talk about JLL's research in this area. And you guys published a report um, not too long ago, actually. So to set the scene, can you give us, first of all, an overview of what that report found, um, but also what you made of those, of those findings? Sure, yeah. Thank you for that. Yeah, so earlier this year in Q2, we published a report focused on data center sustainability. And I think what the key findings and what came clear from that would have been that sustainability is now front and center. I mean, we can take it in uh, the context of climate change. We can't turn on the TV now, but we see uh, inclement weather, we see flooding, we see fires. But in the context of looking at uh, climate and sustainability through a data center lens, one of the key things that became clear is that data centers are a significant digital uh, core asset for digital transformation. And they're also, you know, they had a bad reputation in the beginning, but they're also taking a leading position to become more sustainable. And in addition to the increase in demand, data centers fundamentally use a lot of resources, whether it's energy or water or materials. What we have found is that the data centers have um, had a good start in addressing the sustainability footprint. Um, and you could look at it particularly in the new data center stock, is, which is taking a more innovative approach and particularly looking at science-based targets. But also, we've also discovered that there is still work to be done, particularly around uh, metrics. We know that there is a, a voluntary pact that's out there, particularly in Europe, the Climate Neutral Data Centre Pact. But we think there's also a little bit more work to be done. And I suppose, you know, one of the key things would be that is it is a journey. It's a direction of travel. There is going to be a greater need for transparency. And once the um, metrics are established, then we need to crack on to the next phase and the industry needs to start measuring and applying and then publishing that data in a more transparent manner. Fantastic. That sounds like a very strong call to action. Um, well, if we stay on this point now about metrics um, and actually measuring the scale of the energy use, um, I want to bring Alan to the conversation now as well, because this was the cover story of our August-September issue. Um, now, the data centre industry is certainly talking a lot about efficiency, but there's no effective way, as you measure, as you mentioned, um, to benchmark the energy use, for example, between different types of data centres. So when it comes to the metrics that we use to measure and monitor energy efficiency so it can be improved, um, what is the task at hand here and what does the industry need to do as a first step? Well, I suppose one of the key things is to agree on the metric themselves. So traditionally, data centres were fundamentally focused on uptime. So when we consider legacy data centres, efficiency, to be fair, wasn't front and centre having the data center available and up and running was a key factor. When we look at the metric, the most common metric that we have, PUE, which is talking about power utilization efficiency, that would have been a secondary concern. However, the application of PUE and PUE is a, it's a, a much maligned uh, metric because it was fundamentally designed for tracking improvement at an individual data center. However, some people do try to use it to compare one data center to the next, which is not really what it's designed for. It's really picking a point or establishing a baseline and then from that improving an individual data center. And then also the application and the metric that's used in order to calculate PUE 
is another area that needs to be standardized. Sometimes people use it as a single point, whereas it should be done annualized. And there is a lot of work that was done with um, ISO and some of the European uh, directives on how to actually measure PUA, but the consistency is not there across the industry. And then when we take sustainability and metrics, we have to look a little bit beyond PUA. And we have to look at um, you know, the renewable energy content, whether it's CUE looking at the carbon footprint, or we also need to look at water. For example, we know that um, water is the key metric and the metrics there for WE are not published. And in most cases, they're probably not even measured effectively. So I would say that the key thing is to standardize and agree on a set of metrics and then to publish so that there's greater transparency of those metrics. And that way we can see where the industry is positioned and the direction that they need to go in. Now, as I mentioned earlier on, we do have the climate neutral data center pack, which does set out broad brush targets, but it doesn't describe how. And there is still a piece of work to be done on whether this is the right metric or the right um, level of sustainability metric for data centers, and it's going to take a bit of time. But one thing that is for sure is that the initial measurement period, which is going to kick off from next year, so effectively through January to December 2022, um, data centers will be obliged by this voluntary pact to measure their sustainability um, credentials and then to publish that data by mid um, 2023. And I think at this stage, then we'll start to get a better understanding where we are. How how come do you classify different sorts of data centers? Because one of the conversations I had when researching the feature that Melanie just referred to was that, as we've said, you know, some data centers do relatively simple things like, you know, they deliver Netflix videos. Um, others do weather forecasting with a huge amount of processing going on for, you know, just, uh, you know, to forecast each day and what the weather might be. And, and, and of course, there's lots in between. Um, so how do you say this is that this data center does Weather forecasting, this delivers streaming video, uh, and how do you set different criteria so you can compare what is very different sort of scenarios? Yeah, I think I think it's a great question. And typically when we look at data centers, there are fundamentally three or four different types. They don't necessarily break them down on the workload or the type of activity like you described there. It wouldn't if you take, for example, a legacy data center or enterprise or on premise, that data center is fundamentally designed for a specific business or a business entity. And that might be a bank or supporting whatever their activity is or a large uh, corporation supporting their internal and external data. Then you have large hyperscale data centers, which would be multifunctional. And it might be a question that they have, you know, SaaS or PaaS, software as a service, platform as a service, infrastructure as a service. And then you have co-location, which is effectively like a multi-tenant data center. And you'd have all those groups that you described, whether it would be a Netflix, whether it would be processing, whether it would be storage yeah. or computational. So they're the kind of fundamental ones. And then we're seeing the emergence of edge data centers, which would be the opposite end of the spectrum, whereas the hyperscale will be a large facility, 
the edge data centers are effectively, as they would suggest, are on the edge of data residency. So they're getting closer to the to the user group. And yeah. then just to, to, uh, a final piece on that then would be um, in the case of the activity that goes on in these data centers, what we're finding is as data is growing in demand, we see 5G, Internet of Things, multiple uh, mobile devices coming into play, then the need and the activity in those data centers are changing and some of them become more specialized. Yeah. So is, is, is part of this process that's going on over the next few months, year or so, is to classify? So you've got different categories of data centers, so you can compare like with like, or progress with progress, or um, how does it work? I mean, I've been, and what about the mixed use ones? How do you say, here is a data center with lots of tenants in it. Um, some of them, the processing is provided by the owner. Sometimes it's provided by the tenant and you have no idea what it is or how efficient it is. All they do is, you know, they take a power feed in and a digital feed out. Um, how do you know what's going on? Yeah, it's a good point. And um, I think what's happening is now we are seeing leaders in this space. So when I talked earlier on about um, legacy data centers or enterprise data centers, what we're seeing now, particularly since the cloud became ubiquitous around uh, 2009, there is a migration to the cloud, which is a migration to the hyperscale data center. And the, one of the advantage of the cloud is that because of their scale and efficiency and their new technology and their ability to develop innovative technologies, they're becoming greener and cleaner. Now, it's also fair to say that there's still a piece of work to be done in order to publish the data to answer your question, how do we know what's going on inside? And I think what's happening is that there is a drive there and it's really corporate responsibility and it's the drive to get to net zero that's effectively driving that transition, that's making it more transparent and it's also you know, the cost of energy and uh, the carbon footprint related to these data centers is is front and center now. Yeah, um, I mean, as, as uh, somebody said to me in the, the last feature, obviously there is a, an imperative to use as little energy as possible. But I guess this is me and my um, interpretation of it. Sometimes there are other things that you need to drive down costs when first in just from the, 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 the economics point of view, from the CFO's point of view, you know, uh, sometimes you say, well, OK, we're using a bit more electricity than ideally we should. But otherwise, if we if we address that, we'd incur even higher costs somewhere else. So it's a big it's a big issue, isn't it? Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, Unless we have clear metrics or if we need to move into self-regulatory or regulation, that mm. will drive the discussion. But I think what's also fair to say is the data centers have uh, providers have made a lot of progress by making commitments to their key stakeholders and shareholders to get to what we would refer to as net zero. Mm so that they become cleaner. Now, whether those targets for new data centers, they need to get to net zero by 2025, or existing data centers need to drive down uh, their PUE and their sustainability footprint by 2030. That is there, and by making those commitments, 
there is a great deal of effort and investment moving into the newer technologies to drive a cleaner and greener solution. And, you know, as we referred to earlier on, climate change is, is here and now, it's present. So it's not a question of addressing it tomorrow. The need and the burning platform are standing on us here today, and data centers have a role. We're standing on the burning platform, other than, yeah, yeah exactly. Um, it's urgent. Yep, quite urgent. Um, well, just staying on the um, net zero um, theme there, Colm, um, as much as some players are championing zero carbon and energy efficiency, others are actually still waiting for the grid to be greened, which essentially does the heavy lift for them. Um, so as a consultant with extensive background knowledge on this subject, what are the pros and cons of plugging into a green grid rather than you know, actually generating your own renewable energy? Um, and how do you think customers are going to view this approach over time? Because you've mentioned CSR a couple of times and ESG, um, which obviously feeds into your other people's climate goals as well? Well, again, I think we need to act now and waiting for the green grid. I mean, the grid is precious and the grid, there there is a lot of work being done on renewable energy. We know solar and wind has definitely improved. There's a great deal of focus now on hydrogen and what that can do to add to the grid, to make the grid more green. However, there are there, there is work that can be done at the local level now and at the data center level now. With regard to on-site generation, that's that's a difficult task in order, you know, predominantly the power that's generated at the data center is fundamentally there for backup power. And it's largely driven by diesel generation, which doesn't help and doesn't have a, a good footprint. But there is an opportunity to do some work, whether it's in battery storage, whether it's in hydrogen, whether it's supporting what we would call um, sector coupling, where we can use wind and uh, greener technologies like hydro, wind and solar uh, to support the grid, to make the grid overall to become greener. But it is it is a difficult journey and it's not really commercial right now, although the investment is going there, but waiting for the grid to become greener alone is not going to is not going to satisfy um, the data center sustainability roadmap so there is work on an efficiency level that needs to be done within the building and there is also work in the generation level and working with those sustainable and renewable energies that work needs to be accelerated very true. Um, now, of course, environmental impact isn't just about carbon and energy. Um, we've mentioned water a couple of times already in the conversation. But if we overlay a map of, say, the data center industry's biggest and fastest growing markets with a map of the world's water stress problem, there is an overlap, um, which is going to be a bit of an issue moving forwards. So how do we push water, well, sustainable water use um, up the agenda of the um, of this conversation? Well, I think, again, that's an excellent point, and it is already within the data center industry, water is becoming crucial. So when we look at water, we have to look at different types of water, but I suppose the most precious one is potable water. And, you know, one of the one of the key um, functions in the data center is cooling and dissipating heat. So between the use of innovative technologies or waterless uh, cooling, there is a need to drive the what we would call the water utilization and you know i think the target that's only acceptable is zero so basically we have to come up with cooling uh, methodologies and new technologies that don't consume water and you're absolutely right when you take the growth market and you overlay that map 
a lot of the growth market is in water stressed environments. Whether we take the continent of Africa or we take the Middle East, water is quite precious and it's not widely available. And what we're seeing now is significant improvements, whether it's in liquid cooling and the liquid may not necessarily be water or in the case of where we have we're taking advantage of climate and tr driving the free air or free cooling agenda. And then that may also bring back to some of the metrics. Now, when I talk about these metrics, I don't necessarily mean PUE or WUE. I'm talking about the temperature that the data center can run at. So the fundamental standard that we have is ASHRAE, which means data centers run between 18 degrees C and 27 degrees C. And allowing the uh, tolerable level to run the data center is going to, is, uh, it's going to help lessen the pressure and demand on water. But there, it is definitely front and center, particularly, as you said, which is a really good observation that the growth markets are happening in water stressed areas. And that's not lost on the large data center providers, nor is it lost on the geos that were developing the markets. So I, I do see work and improvement in this space. Still, there's work to be done, but it, it's not lost. And I think technology and innovative technologies is going to be the way to solve it. Definitely, yeah. And we have heard some really innovative solutions um, over the last couple of years. And the industry is obviously, you know, clearly making a commitment to this. Um, but yeah, like you said, it, it is an issue there. Um, last question from me, Colm. Do you think it's necessary that some markets should begin to regulate the environmental impact of ICT as they do, for example, with other industries? Yes. And, you know, if, if we take it back to the report at um, JLL and what we published in Q2, we see the um, the climate neutral data center pact as a way of staving off that regulation. But in essence, it's just a way to address it, to allow time to figure out what the me metric or what the regulation should should look like. Now, we have seen early signs of it, for example, the moratorium in Amsterdam and in Singapore, where we've seen planning regulations starting to address what data centers should look like. And there is a case to be made for regulation because we also know whether it's economic reasons um, that drive competitiveness or drive the sustainability agenda. Data centers are highly regulated and they're used to regulation. But I think the concern is how do we put the regulation in place? Like Amsterdam, for example, will only approve planning for data centers that have a PUE of 1.2. So they're starting to put um, some sustainability rules around that. And I think it's it's very, very possible that it will happen and there is some justification for it to happen. But the timing and the metric is crucial. And I think the data center operators have a role in developing those targets, whether they're science based targets, making sure that, yes, they will be challenging, but attainable. And I, I think also the whole area of biodiversity gain. So when we look at biodiversity and we look at sustainability, although we focus a lot on energy, we did focus on water. There's also the full circular economy. There's also the need um, to figure out what other materials, not just um, electricity and water, but maybe precious metals like palladium or nickel or cobalt or steel, that they're done in, that their building of these data centers is more sustainable, that we take a complete life cycle look at it and we look at the different elements of embodied carbon. So I think it is becoming front and center. Will Is there a case for regulation? Yeah, I do believe so. Is it going to happen? If we look at COP26 and we look at climate change now, I wouldn't be surprised if re regulation becomes front and center in the next 12 months.
that would certainly shake things up in the industry. Let's um, watch the space on that one. But is that a concern? Are the regulators, in other words, the governments of this world, do they actually understand the issues? I, you know, fairly few people in uh, politics I've ever come across uh, over the decades really know anything about it. I mean, uh, is there a big education problem that you guys and other data centre people have to do? Uh, Otherwise, you're going to get Idiots running. I mean, okay. Let me withdraw that term. Uh, but you're going to get ignorant politicians who know absolutely nothing about it, setting rules that they do not understand. Well, I, I think that's a fair observation because data centers are complex. So I think there is a piece of education that needs to be done. But I think it's not lost on the politicians as they are now starting to ask the right questions. So when we link of the growth. Uh, sorry, when we link uh, yeah, of growth in the economy, we know that the digital economy, the service-based economy is a key factor, but it has to be done in a sustainable fashion because we also have climate change. So when these two, which are kind of diametrically opposed or look like they're pulling in different directions, sustainable data centers are achievable. Mm-hmm. Educating the hearts and minds is also important on a technical level and a will to drive that, whether it's through regulation or true, you know, good corporate uh, social responsibility. And I think it's going to take a little bit of education and it's going to come very soon. There's also a strange feeling that a lot of people have, Coleman, you know, ordinary people that sitting at home watching Netflix and or Amazon Prime is somehow more wasteful of energy than driving to the cinema or that all of us, as we have been for the past 18 months, working at home is somehow more wasteful of energy than getting a train or bus or a car into the office. And somehow, you know, there is a positive side to what's been going on over the last 18 months that actually, you know, data centres do enable more efficient use of energy, which I think has not been getting across. I, I think that's a fair point. What I would say is, you know, one one of the key learning, if there is any um, silver lining to the COVID pandemic that we've had is that we realize that the dependency that we have on data centers. Mm-hmm. And when we talk about the cloud, we're fundamentally talking about connected data centers. And I think what does need to happen is we need to have a better understanding of what the actual carbon footprint is. That if we ask any one data center provider, can you tell me exactly what your carbon footprint is? Well, only if they only if they measure can they manage mm. so that that needs to be understand and yeah. then looking at the complete life cycle or the footprint on transportation or data centers you know as you said driving to the movie or streaming um, a netflix movie that needs to be probably better understood that would start a long and interesting process if, if every manufacturer of a, an electric SUV had to provide a full carbon footprint for their products and their manufacturing process and their uh, end of life policy. Uh, that, that would open a lot of can of worms, wouldn't it, Gold? <laughs> I, I think it would, but I, I do think there is a there is a need and there is some logic for, for having that ownership from the top down. And yeah. I think where where it comes into place is when we talk a little bit about making commitments uh, to get to net zero. The key here is that you need to appoint the champion for sustainability. So then we have ownership. We need to have a starting point where we do an assessment internally and publish the data in a transparent way 
that we understand what the full um, carbon impact is or what the environmental impact is of our digital footprint. And then from that, then we look at both sides. One is the material, which is effectively building and um, taking precious resources to build these large facilities. And then the second is the operational side of it, operating with a sustainability mindset rather than purely uptime and availability. Because we do need data centers, but we need sustainable data centers. We can't afford to have data centers that we would have built 30 years ago because it's putting too much stress on precious resources. So how many data center operators and I take that in the widest sense from big enterprises that have their own to big data center uh, to hypersale operators. How many of them have a, a, a champion of uh, sustainability? Uh, I think it, it's it's changed significantly in the last 12 months. I think particularly the, one of the key catalysts, as I did mention earlier, was the Climate Neutral Data Center Pact. And when you look at who signed up to that and since it kicked off, in uh, earlier this year and who's even added to that. I'd say there are very, very few, if any major data center operators that do not have a, a sustainability champion or sometimes they're called carbon champions because it's now published just like they're publishing and auditing their financial accounts, their sustainability um, footprint and their sustainability um, corporate mandate is now coming into the public domain because they're being driven by the customers, they're being driven by the users. Everybody in this call is using um, data centers in some way, even by just facilitating the call itself. We're operating to some degree in some data center. And it's no longer acceptable to have these data centers, as I said, without considering the impact that it has on the environment. So I would say with the commitments that they've made, and these commitments are centered around 2025, 2030 on that roadmap and journey, it's it's also becoming a competitive advantage and it's an imperative that we do get to net zero. Excellent. It is an imperative indeed, yes. Um, Natalie, over to you. Um, I think everything's been covered quite extensively, Com. I mean, I, the only thing that really kind of sprung to mind when we were kind of uh, when you touched on the uh, the last 12 to 18 months, um, which I'm, I'm sure has had a really big impact on on everything in the the ICT space in general. Um, but I was just curious to know your thoughts on the kind of the um, the growing reliance on kind of automation in the data center space and the role that automation will kind of play in kind of future sustainability of the of the of the data center as a whole. Do you see that role um, growing and Will we kind of get to that um, zero touch provisioning that um, I think we we often see in other parts of the network? Um, I think that's a really great question. I think you know what's what's fundamental about data centers, and it's so ironic, is data centers specialize in a lot of data, hence data center. But data on the actual data center itself, there's a bit of work to be done there. Around automation, I I see a role, for example, in AI. Um, artificial intelligence in mapping, whether it's tracking external environment, weather patterns, operating and changing equipment then to, to map to that, or whether it's effectively workload balance at a server level or individual pod level. There, again, technology itself can be smarter in order to ratchet down the need for cooling or the need for energy. And I think, as I said, the, these innovative technologies by inward looking and looking at the functionality and methodologies behind the data center there's definitely an opportunity there and it's been it's been used now 
And with automation, with data center management, whether it's in airflow management or computational fluid dynamics, searching for hot and cold spots for data centers that are running idle and they don't have workload. I think that, you know, because the sustainability um, the sustainability is now front and center on the agenda, every opportunity to apply innovative technologies to improve the efficiency of the data center is already happening. Yeah, absolutely. Perfect. Thank you, Natalie. Thank you so much, everybody. And thank you so much to Colin for joining us today. And it's been great to speak with you. And we do hope that you enjoy joining us as well. Yeah, very much. Thank you. Um, well, that brings us to the end of this week's episode. Thank you to the team for bringing us the latest on all those stories. Thanks to everybody who listened. And a huge thanks to you to Colin for joining us live today. We will be back next week with more stories from the global tech and telecom space. But until then, we will not leave you without updates. You can catch up with all the latest on telecoms and data centers over at capacitymedia.com. Don't forget to sign up to our daily and weekly news alerts. Check out the latest edition of Capacity Magazine and also register for our upcoming events. For now, that's all from me and the team. Have a great week. Take care and catch you next time.